the reading of the scriptures, uh, reading Psalm 130. So hear the word of the Lord. May we hear it in faith and rejoicing that we have uh, God's revelation to us. Psalm 130. A song of ascents. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Uh, As is uh, my custom early Sunday morning, I catch the... uh, Headlines of the Daily Oklahoman, open the paper, a little booklet falls out, magazine of some some such, uh, extolling the virtues of Oklahoma City, I presume. But uh, one of the titles of the article was The Greatest Gift. It really attracted uh, my attention because we all need great gifts uh, in life. So what is the greatest gift? Well, in the case of uh, Daily Oklahoman, it was uh, give your organs away. Uh, I won't prevail upon you to do that this morning. Uh, really, uh, repair to what is really the greatest gift of all time. And uh, that is the forgiveness of uh, sin and uh, guilt. The greatest gift of all time. Uh, but not just uh, the gift, but the giver. Because uh, they are inextricably uh, linked together. Uh, and it is this that uh, turns the, the psalmist to trusting God, uh, who provides uh, this greatest of all gifts in time uh, and in eternity. Uh, this is a, a pilgrim psalm, uh, my own understanding, uh, certainly not universally held, but it was sung by the pilgrims as they went up during the great pilgrim feast, uh, certainly uh, regarding the feast of, uh, feast of Passover. would have been entirely appropriate. Uh, but as he uh, as he goes to Jerusalem uh, to engage in uh, obligatory worship, uh, our psalmist is burdened with uh, with guilt, the guilt of sin, and it uh, causes him to cry out to God, uh, who is the basis for uh, hope. Uh, and then he summons uh, his countrymen uh, with the promise of redemption. Uh, If you think about it, uh, one of the outcomes of sin is guilt. Uh, It's simply a natural consequence of uh, of sin. We don't think about consequences in our culture. We're immune to it. Uh, We've really learned to deaden our conscience so there is no guilt, and that in and of itself is is a terrible path to utter ruin, but our psalmist is otherwise... Uh, he is uh, guilt, guilty. We don't really know what the sin is or uh, what it could be, but but again, he's struggling uh, with the guilt of his sin. And the weight of it uh, 
uh, causes him to cry out to God, verses 1 and 2. Uh, in that sense, uh, there is a measure of a lament in our psalm. Uh, he's in a tragic estate. He cries to God. Psalm 130, uh, in verse 1, Out of the depths I have cried to thee, O Lord. He's in the depths. Uh, it is if, if he is at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, I don't know if you have ever engaged in uh, fantasies like snorkeling or scuba diving, but the deeper you go, uh, the weight of the water that's all above you uh, becomes more and more tremendous. Uh, that's it's as if the psalmist is walking in the midst of the great Marianas Trench at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, and the weight is so powerful, he cannot really uh, move. And of course, if it were physically so, he would be dead. But nonetheless, it's the terrible weight of, uh, of sin. Uh, by application, I happen to believe, uh, by the way, that one of the reasons we have an opioid crisis uh, in America, and one of the reasons we have a terrible suicide crisis, is, is because of this very issue, uh, the guilt, which cannot be shed by the human. Uh, there's a parallel to this in uh, Psalm 69, Psalm of David. Save me, O God, for the waters threaten my life. I've sunk in deep mire and there's no foothold. I've come into deep waters and flood overflows me. Uh, it's a natural response to the guilt of sin. Uh, if, if you uh, suppress the natural, hit the snooze button all too often, the guilt will go away. But that is a much more terrible disease than the guilt of sin. Because it's a natural response. Uh, the guilt which causes the pain is natural. Pain in and of itself is a natural phenomenon. Don't disregard your pain. But the psalmist will tell us how to deal with the pain of the guilt of sin. Uh, and it rolls upon him like successive waves or fixes him in quicksand. Uh, the distress causes him to cry to God. It is noteworthy to me that he has no other option. And that really is the point of the psalm. There's no other option but to cry to God. You cry anywhere else. And our culture is filled with everywhere else but God. Uh, you may get a temporary answer, but we're more than seeking provisional answers. We're seeking for final, absolute, eternal answers. Uh, and that is where our psalmist is turning us all. Imperfect and temporal solutions will unravel and fail. Opioids might work for a short season. And that's a terrible tragedy in and of itself. Uh, all human provisions will fail and unravel. It's instructive to me that the psalmist does not summons a priest. He goes to the ultimate priest, who is God. The only one who can really solve the issue. And neither does he develop a sterling. This is so American. Neither does he develop a sterling self-help program. Because there is no self-help program from the guilt of sin. Uh, one of my favorite verses, it was instructive to 
turning me back to God. Isaiah 64, 6. For all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteousness are as filthy rags. Every self-help program that exists, and there are libraries filled with them, may work for but a season when it comes to the guilt of sin. Ultimately, only God is the final and absolute answer. All of them will fail. And so Isaiah tells us all our righteous deeds are filthy rags before God. He does not look upon them. He does not count them. He does not give you reprieve in them. They will all fail. And then Isaiah says, and all of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind carry us away. Tragic as a summation, uh, but it is uh, the prescription of the eternal doctor who gives us the truth of our self-help programs that we might turn to the one true God. God is the only cure and remedy. Only. He is not just a cure and remedy. He is that to be sure. It's more radical than that. He is the only cure and remedy. You take away the adjective only and you have redefined the nouns. And we are most adept at that uh, in American culture. And so he cries to God. His prayers are therefore so directed. It's interesting when you look at, uh, if you look at the text, uh, May your ears be open to the voice of my supplications. It's in the plural. Meaning, I think, constant repetition. Uh, this guilt plagues him. And he constantly is crying to God. Perhaps he has exhausted every other avenue. As God oftentimes puts these avenues in our path, eventually to turn us to himself. You go down all those roads, and eventually it's a cul-de-sac. You're in a circle. You can't get out. And that's where God would have you. You would cry to Him. Because He is the only cure for the guilt of sin. There's no human remedy. One of the greatest illustrations of this is Martin Luther. Luther was terrified by the guilt of his sin. So much so at the profound displeasure of his father who wanted him to be a lawyer. Uh, he joined an Augustinian monastery with profound regiments to deal with the guilt of sin. Profound regiments, all of the ritual of religion. Rubbing beads and singing songs and standing and praying. And all of the ritual. It doesn't work. They make you feel good, but it doesn't work before God. Luther becomes a monk as a solution, but the more and more he worked, the more and more of his biblical self-help programs he tried, he was plagued by the question, have I done enough? Have I done enough? That is the point of Isaiah 64.6. You cannot do enough. And all that you do will eventually unravel and become undone. And it led Luther to him whose works alone God will accept. Namely, Christ alone. Uh, the essence of human religion is to do, but you cannot do enough. 
The essence of the Christian faith is the work of Christ alone, who does it all, and who is enough, who is sufficient and efficient before the throne room of God. That is, uh, that is the liability that uh, every human being carries. Uh, it's the guilt that turns our psalmist to God. Uh, I would remind you in the simplicity of the gospel, or the words of Jesus, uh, come unto me all of you who labor and are heavy laden. The religion uh, that Christ encounters among his countrymen in his earthly ministry was profound religious works. They venerated them. Christ says, come unto me. I will give you rest. Rest is a synonym for salvation. In Testament. In verses 3 to 4, we have a cure for guilt in time. The cure is introduced uh, in a conditional statement. Uh, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities. Uh, the verb mark can be also be translated to keep or to preserve with the contextual sense of the effect of continuing liability. Uh, because sin incurs liability before the eternal God who's infinitely perfect. The psalmist is really saying, if you should mark that, and never erase it, I'm doomed. The direct object of, uh, of the marking, of course, is his iniquities. Uh, yeah, the word uh, iniquities uh, has its, its verbal form to bend or to twist. We are, we are uh, born uh, crooked or twisted in the sin of Adam. That's why there's a measure of guilt, uh, even to the newborn child. Uh, because the sin of Adam is imputed to him. Uh, that immediately in that imputation, works are twisted, his mind is twisted. Uh, simply the teaching of the Scriptures. Romans chapter 5, if you will. All of us are twisted and bent, crooked. We have an entire absence of holiness and an entire inclination to evil. And I don't care what monastery you join, what religious order, whether it be Christian or pagan, none of it will work before the eternal God. We have an entire inclination to evil. And even our good works puff us up in pride. We march around thinking that we're better than someone else, but maybe we are in terms of culture and civilization, but not before God. And that's a decisive nail in the coffin of our spiritual death. We are fallen and our works are so tainted, the predicament is absolute. The apotheosis of the if-then statement. The if is, God, if you mark. Uh, but there's a then. Then. The technical word is uh, the apotheosis of the if-then. If you should mark, then who can stand? And that's the point of religious works. Regardless of the religion all over the world, regardless of whether the robes are saffron or white, it makes no difference. Who can stand if God marks? If you're marked forever, nothing can change it. 
God marks you and therefore only can change it. That's the point of the text. Who can stand? The verb stand has the idea to stand before a divine tribunal and to make your case. The judge is God. You may think you're a good attorney, but your arguments will all unravel. All unravel. The greatest religious lawyers of all time were in the days of Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They were so good, they thought they could trip him up. And time and again they tried. He unraveled all of their arguments. And that's what will happen to you. When you say to yourself, I don't need God. I feel guilty for nothing. You'll stand before the greatest judge of all time, who is infinite, eternal, and perfect, and your arguments will be temporal and imperfect. And you will wither like the leaf and the wind will carry you away. The point of the text is you cannot stand before this court and this judge, namely the eternal court, and the eternal God. Of course, it's really in the text a rhetorical question. Who can stand? The answer rhetorically is, of course, no one. No one. And that is the human predicament. For everyone in this earth. And this brings us, of course, to the cure, the gospel. So God provides. And so we read in verse 4, but but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. Uh, the essence of the gospel is that God provides. Uh, men cannot provide for themselves in terms of uh, this predicament. And so God, God provides. God is a loving and a merciful God. He provides. But again, please remember the adjective only God provides. He will only take His own solution that He provides. Everything else will unravel and fail. This is the doom of all other religions in the world. God must provide, and He does provide. He does provide forgiveness. The idea of forgiveness is pardon. And in the Scriptures, it's only used to God because only God can pardon. I think pardon is a wonderful thing. You and I pardon our spouses. We pardon our colleagues. We pardon our neighbors. Uh, we should pardon people all of their lives because we are desperate for pardon ourselves. But when it comes to the guilt of sin, only God can pardon. Uh, I can't give it to you. Uh, I can't sell it to you. By the way, that was the instrumental cause of the Protestant Reformation. The revolt of Luther. That when he saw Tetzel selling indulgences for money, that a person could buy forgiveness. It's something that cannot be purchased. It's only a gift. The provision is entirely divine. Only He can give it. There's a beautiful expression of this in a provisional sense in the Old Testament. Uh, once a year, uh, the high priest uh, would uh, lay his hands upon the head of a goat and confess the sins of the nation. 
And then Leviticus 16.22, And the goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land and shall release the goat in the wilderness. That the sin of the nation would be imputed to the, to the goat and the goat would be released to carry them away. It is a picture of the Gospel. A picture of the Gospel. The goat would carry them away. Carry the sin away. The more uh, final provision, the Old Testament of the great servant song, Isaiah 53.6, all of us like sheep have uh, gone astray. Each of us has turned his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon Him. Incredible expression of the Gospel. Isaiah 53.11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities and like the scapegoat, carry them away. Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song, fulfilled, of course, by Christ. Who is the scapegoat? Uh, you, you turn to God. You ask Him to place uh, the guilt of all of your sin. Not just past. Not just present. But all of them. Even the sins yet committed. Uh, that uh, Christ carries them away. And the scapegoat never returns. Great reminder of who Christ is. In the cultic system of Israel, they did it once a year. Uh, it happens to the Christian one time uh, because he is the great high priest. He uh, carries them all away. Uh, the Christology is clear, decisive. Uh, it's picked up everywhere by the Old Testament prophets. Uh, the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah writes of the new covenant. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me and I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. New covenant uh, inaugurated by the blood of Christ, fulfilled by Him. He inaugurates the new covenant and all of our sins are pardoned. All of them. Uh, Christ alone affects forgiveness. Now we see this in one, one illustration among countless uh, in the Gospel. Uh, Mark chapter 2, uh, verse 5, Jesus encounters a paralytic. He turns to the man and says, My son, thy sins are forgiven. It's the greatest gift of all time. Given by Christ. The paralytic could do nothing. That's the point of the, of the paralysis. He couldn't run a hundred yards. He couldn't go work in the, in the vineyard and gather grapes for Jesus. Uh, he couldn't uh, gather grapes and sell them to bring money to Jesus. The point of the fact he was a paralytic, he was totally unable. But Jesus gives it anyway because he's a gracious and merciful. Reminder of the object, Christ. Christ alone. Uh, 
we know it's a, it's a divine event because the lawyers, uh, verse 7, begin, begin to dispute among themselves, lawyers that they were. Only God forgives sin, and they got that one right. They just flunked the test because they failed to see that Jesus was God. And that's the point of the text. Jesus is God. He forgave the man and left them. The purpose of the divine initiative in forgiveness is that we might revere God. Verse 4. Thou mayest be feared and respected. When you receive the greatest of all gifts and you recognize that you could do nothing to earn it or deserve it, you honor and you revere God. Some people would say, Bower Socks, if we truly believed your theology, uh, we could uh, sin abound in our lives because Jesus has forgiven us. No, they, they flunk they flunked the point of the apotheosis of uh, the Hebrew Bible that we may fear you, revere you, respect you, honor you, because we have received from you the greatest gift of all time, the lifting of all guilt, and the coming of forgiveness, the totality of absolution, forgiven forever. It is a reminder of uh, the reverence uh, due the divine initiative and the solitariness of the divine provision as totally alien to us and entirely of his sovereign prerogative. Notice he gives, Jesus gives it to the paralytic, but uh, leaves the lawyers to stew in their religion. And in a moment, they flunked law school. But little do they understand who is in their midst. Well, this is a, our text is something of a provisional cure, but there is, of course, a final, a final cure that the psalmist is waiting for. Not final in the sense that he still incurs liability because that's been forgiven him in Christ. Uh, the Old Testament literature is looking to the cross, uh, the finality of forgiveness, but he's looking for, uh, for a greater cure of the vestige of, of the marks of sin still within him. Not its guilt because that's been lifted forever, uh, but uh, the pollution uh, that, uh, that sin leaves in our lives. And that engages uh, him, the psalmist, uh, the finality in verse 5. I wait for the Lord, my soul does wait, and in His word uh, do I hope. Uh, waiting for the eager expectation of the final total reversal of sin. Uh, guilt has uh, been taken care of, but uh, the effect still remains. Our psalmist is waiting for the totality of the reversal. But again, I remind you that uh, the object, again, is, is the Lord. The Lord. Uh, and then a very important parallel phrase uh, in text. Uh, in his word do I hope. Uh, parallel in the sense that uh, looking to the Lord and uh, waiting Lord in expectant 
hope is uh, the same as reading the Word of God and waiting upon the promises of the Word. You truncate those two, and you're going to find yourself in a bad way. It's the Word of the Lord that tells us about who God is and who we are, that He is the cure. Tells you how to wait, what to do when you're waiting. All of that is subject matter throughout the Scripture. Continue to search the Scriptures to wait upon the Lord. I say that because one of the easiest things to do in our culture is to say, well, God's, God's too slow for me. I'm out of here. And that in and of itself is a dangerous path. Wait upon the Lord. Wait upon the Lord. Great promise of the prophet Isaiah encouraging his people for the last great exodus. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Uh, throughout our exodus in this land, we wait upon the Lord to total reverse the effects of the fall. Uh, it's a reference to, uh, the word is a reference to the great promises of the end time uh, resurrection of glory. Something of this in the great confessional statement of Job, Job 13, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. The outcome is certain. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible of Psalm 130, we have a simile that enforces the expectation to continue to wait upon the Lord. Uh, by the way, I will tell you in all of your life, that is uh, a course that you will never graduate from. In all of your pursuits, whatever they may be, wait upon the Lord. Look to the Lord. In this case, it's uh, waiting for the final reversal of the effects of sin. Uh, look at the simile. My soul waits for the Lord more than a watchman for the morning. Indeed, more than the watchman for the morning. I don't know if you've ever worked the swing shift. Like three to eleven. Oh, three's okay. Five, six, seven, eight, it's okay. It's those nine to eleven hours that'll get you every time. I used to be on the swing shift as a brakeman switchman for the once Santa Fe Atchison Topeka Railroad. And I can tell you working on the railroad in a swing shift can be a very dangerous time if your eyes grow heavy. Because a freight car doesn't wait or stop for you. If you are in its way, you're in a bad way. The watchman waits for the coming of morning. I remember uh, waiting for the coming morning in the army. Oh, to be on guard duty when it's 2.30 in the morning. Oftentimes you would go to sleep hoping that the officer of the guard or the sergeant of the guard wouldn't come around and catch you asleep. Oh, to be caught by the officer of the guard when you're asleep. Uh, but that's a sermon of another Sunday. Uh, 
the watchman is waiting for the morning, and that's the point. The hope is in the morning. The point is hoping in uh, the rising of the, of the sun. And the point, of course, is eschatological. When Christ comes again, the dawning of the day, the greatest day of all time, the rising of the sun, the coming of the Lord who brings glory with Him. That's what He's waiting for. The final expectation, the reversal of all of the effects of sin. The guilt has been paid for at the cross, but the total reversal. Oh, that that day would come. Uh, if you're a Christian, I will tell you, you grow older and things begin to break. Things get out of joint. Discs slip. You know why those things happen, by the way? Fall of Adam. Go to your orthopedic surgeon. I'm not telling you not to go. You go as quickly as you can. They do great things. Go see your physicians. But uh, but the reason you're going is because of the fall of Adam in the Garden of Eden. And they do great temporal things, but uh, eventually even they too will wear out. It's the end of us all. And apart from Christ, uh, the wind will gather you like the leaf and carry you away. In terms of the watchman, he will get off work. But he, the psalmist, is looking for the eradication of corruption and its effects forever. And he waits for this, like the watchman waits for the coming of the Lord, continually looking in the Word, following the Word. And then the psalmist summons all of his countrymen. Verses 7 to 8. Hope in the Lord. It's an imperative. There are three reasons that we should hope in the Lord. The first is loving kindness. Verse 7. With the Lord there is loving kindness. This is a covenantal term. By covenant I mean contract. Not unlike contract law in the state of Oklahoma. God makes a contract with us. And the great hope of the gospel is that he keeps it all. We continue to wait for the finality of the final clause for him to keep it. And he will. Because of his loving kindness. Because he is loyal and he is faithful. It's the greatest remembrance of all time. That God makes the contract with us and keeps it. The Son keeps part of it. Jesus Christ, the Spirit, keeps the rest of it. And then the Son will do the rest when He comes again in glory. Uh, The second reason we should wait for the Lord is in the Lord there is redemption abundantly. Redemption has the idea of the transfer of ownership by the payment of a ransom. 1 Peter 1.18 You were not redeemed with perishable things. Oh, that Every Protestant religion would remember that. Oh, that that the Orthodox and the Romans would remember that. We're not redeemed with perishable things. A human priest will not work. Human works will not work. We were not redeemed with perishable things. Oh, but verse 19, 1 Peter 1, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, and spotless, the blood of Christ. That will work every time. All the time. 
and it's the only cure that will work before the eternal God. Again, outside of Christ, you are forever unable to pay for the demand is infinite and eternal. But Christ is the God-man, is infinite and eternal, and therefore He can vacate eternal liability, the guilt of our sin. Third reason to wait upon the Lord is He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. Uh, the word here, redeem, is the verbal form of the word in the previous verse. This text is alluded to uh, by the Apostle Paul, Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Speaking of Christ, the great and only Redeemer, who gave Himself for us, that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Uh, he purchases us and transfers ownership from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Uh, the promise of this is in our psalm, Psalm 130. It's uh, fulfilled by Jesus in the church. A, uh, if you have your New Testament, turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 1. A cognate of uh, redemption is uh, found in Luke chapter 1 and verse 68. I'd like for you to look at the text as I read it. It's uh, a song extolling, commemorating the gift of Christ, the coming of Christ. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for He has visited us and accomplished redemption for His people. In the coming of Christ, Jesus fulfills Psalm 130. Jesus knew about this psalm. He's going to fulfill it, but He would have never prayed it because He alone is infinite perfection. Everyone else has to pray this psalm if it wishes to be saved. Looking to the Lord. Following the Lord. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Reinforce, uh, you're looking at the text in my reading because of the majesty of it. In Him, namely in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 7. Hear the text. In Him, we have redemption. Present tense, we have. We possess it. We have redemption. The greatest gift of all time. There's none greater. I understand Christmas. I understand anniversary gifts. All of those are wonderful things. But they're all perishable. Christ is imperishable. The virtues of all that He's accomplished upon the cross will never run out. Never rust or corrode. In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Oh, to be forgiven. In Christ we are. The greatest gift. All time. We desperately need God as the giver of the gift because of who we are, all that we've done. So forgiveness is a present reality in Jesus. A measure of the gospel. First John 1 John 1.9 If you're not a Christian, 
If you confess your sin, He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. What stands out to me in that verse and the promise of the gospel is the word all. That's why their gift is so great. The entire weight of uh, the guilt of sin, its consequences. Forgiven. He's our ransom, Jesus is. But I remind you, going a step beyond uh, in terms of the majesty of Psalm 130, forgiveness does not mean eradication. Here too, we engage the grace of God. The psalmist is also waiting for glorification in which the sin within us is totally vacated. That the curse of the liability is final, but not its effects. In New Testament theology, we are justified in which we are pardoned and accepted before God. But our sanctification engages the progress of dying to sin and living to Christ, but in glorification, we are made perfect in holiness and pass into glory. The finality, it is this for which we wait. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worthy to be compared with the glory that is yet to be revealed to us. Verse 21, that the creation itself also will be set free from the slavery of the corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. If you're a Christian, that's what you're waiting for. If you're a Christian, there's something of a semblance that you say to God, come, come, make me totally new. The end state of the new creation. The grandeur, the provision of God. The already has occurred. We're forgiven. The guilt has been vacated. All of our sins forgiven. But we yet await eradication. Eradication. Not in this life, but when Christ comes. We look for the Savior. Uh, we hope in Him. Uh, and He is faithful. And... Uh, while I will tell you in my own life, he oftentimes appears very slow. He is never tardy or ever late. And when it comes glorifying all of the sons of God, he will be on time. The time that he has set out in eternity past. Uh, perhaps it would come this day. But whenever it comes, it will be so glorious, so majestic, so final, and so utterly beautiful. It will be infinite beauty and majesty. I have pictures of beauty in my life. I think of those that I love. I remember a great piece of art was uh, stolen from a family by the Nazis during the terrible time of uh, shall we say, National Socialism. Uh, the artwork was entitled The Woman in Gold. I saw a picture of it. I, I was just transfixed by the beauty. It's just incredible, astounding beauty to me. 
I had to go to New York City where the actual painting is. I had to go to that, to that museum and pay the price and stand in the line. But to stand before the woman in gold. Beauty to me that was unimaginable. And then I, I, I understood a measure of the fact that we await the eradication of the corruption of the sons of God for the finality of the majestic beauty, sublime, pulchritude in infinity, which is Christ's coming. Rescue us. That is a day Christian awaits. We're forgiven. We're being sanctified. And glory is coming for us. May God hasten that day. If you know not this God, come to the Savior. And you too will await the most beautiful event and beautiful person of all time. And may God's Spirit press us in these matters for those who wait will see.